Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ted Cover. And you're listening to Review the Future. So welcome to yet another one of our live and direct uh, conversational episodes. And before we jump in, I think we have just a few follow-ups from last week that we want to start with. So, John... So actually, one of these reaches back a little further than last week to when we were talking about AI risk, and I was oh, right. complaining. Uh, well, uh, one of the things I was complaining about or lamenting was that there isn't really a concise explainer online that I know of that can very quickly get someone up to speed on this issue who's not aware of the details. Uh, and uh, a previous podcast guest, Calm Chase, uh, emailed me to say, hey, what about my writing? Um, Calum Chase, of course, wrote a book called Surviving AI that we talked about in a previous episode. Right. And uh, I do think actually that's a good alternative book to super intelligence that can get you up to speed on AI risk in um, a little bit easier to read fashion. And one of the nice things about that book is it contained a summary at the end. Uh, and Calum Chase has kind of reformat reformatted that summary and put it online. Uh, so we will link to that. For readers who are curious about that. Oh, that's good. So that is a kind of concise summary then. Because, yeah, I think I was thinking the book was too long to count. Yes. So so more it's the chapter that's the summary chapter from the book, but uh, rewritten to be standalone. Got it. Um, however, it wasn't exactly what I was talking about when I was complaining there isn't a concise explainer. I was thinking something more of the audio or video variety is needed. Something that really captures a right. mass audience. You're thinking of like a Vox explainer, like one of those like... Vi pop videos that are now produced by many outlets that, yeah. that have like a kind of light tone and some music and some animation and they get you through a topic like a concise yeah. 10 minute youtube video um you know i keep thinking that maybe someone like cgp gray is going to make one of these because i know he's read super intelligence and sure. has talked about that but uh as far as i know one hasn't showed up yet so uh maybe someday soon um maybe we'll work on well, it maybe callum should make one I, he he seemed intrigued by the idea when I when I told that to him. So maybe he will. I I, I think that's a good idea. Um, all right, we have a, f a few other uh, comments that came in too uh, in the last week or so. Yeah, and some of these are more relevant directly to last week's episode. So uh, Frank Player, I assume that's how you say his last name, um, who's emailed us many times. He's a, a listener who often shares good thoughts with us. Yes. Uh, he followed up uh, about self-driving cars. Yeah, so one of the things that he mentioned was um, about uh, driver monitoring systems. Because I think we talked about the problem of these sort of hybrid systems, man-machine, where you have uh, a car that's mostly driving itself, but a human that's supposed to be observing it and, and jumping in when problems arise. Right. So these are things like they have steering wheels that can sense whether your hands are on them, right? Or they have things that can tell whether your eyes are looking out at the road or whether they're looking down. Yeah. So again, one of the problems that arises is that right. people tune out right so the driver monitoring systems are things like you're describing yeah. that could catch the person that, that's tuning out in an automated fashion yes uh and maybe i don't know shock them awake or something or, yeah. that's a joke but right or stop the car maybe yeah, yeah safely uh yeah I, I i think in the case of the specific uber death that we were discussing last week mm -hmm. you can see clearly in the um into your cabin video that the woman is looking down at the moment of the crash mm-hmm and um, so if there was a system that monitored her, her eyes 
and uh, knew that they were no longer on the road. Well, and actually, Frank right? sent us to a YouTube video that mm-hmm. we can share that is basically a demonstration of that kind of system yeah. applied to the footage of that woman driving the car. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's and, and basically doing exactly what you're saying. Oh, cool. So it's a little bit of a just a proof of concept for this idea. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that. And there's more. There's more from Frank actually, which. Uh, He's talking about the uh, this. He sent us this other article, which is comparing um, two models of of uh, system that are out for driver monitoring and uh, what kind of policies they have. Yeah, so that's something maybe we'll we'll link to as well. Cool. Um, and he also commented on we we were talking about this scenario, and to me, this is a little bit of a, in jest because I didn't think yes. it was that realistic. Yes. But we were talking about teledriving, right? Where uh, you could drive a self driving car remotely. And we were talking about a sort of control room situation somewhere where adrenaline junkies sit there and wait to be popped into vehicles to prevent <laughs> an accident. Before the crash, yeah, yeah. yeah, to try to prevent them, which I was definitely speaking uh, extemporaneously and kind of getting excited by an imaginative concept there, not, um, not making what I thought was a realistic prediction. I think this is a little bit of the, the consequence of our new format, where if I had time to think about this, I would have realize that yeah frank is absolutely right the the most useful reason that they're actually developing this stuff is for eventual steeringless steering wheelless cars so when you have a steering wheelless car um if it's just in any kind of inclement situation or confusing situation where the system uh won't drive because it realizes it doesn't know what's going on which doesn't have to be super time sensitive no no no. it can just stop and wait for somebody to remote in it's in a weird kind of traffic or environment that it, the right. system can't figure out right like something like um very strange weather events mm-hmm. where uh objects are flying through the air or something like that you you know the car might just not be able to handle that so it just hands off to a human in a call center um but not right not in a time sensitive way so yeah uh frank's absolutely right that that's the more realistic use of that technology rather than um some sort of weird adrenaline junkie um uh air traffic control slash drone piloting hybrid scenario but i was just getting excited about a a, cra- well, a crazy idea <laughs> well if anyone wants to make that movie uh ted and i will write it for you yeah because uh, i would it, at least watch it <laughs> yeah um so uh another listener chris ross uh commented on one of our facebook threads um about the uh well sort of the idea that you know why aren't we putting more cameras in cars already why aren't insurance companies asking for this yeah, yeah, this is a great comment. Um, he mentioned that they do mandate this in um, in commercial trucking, which I did not know. That mm-hmm. was news to me, but it's not at all surprising. Um, and his comment uh, continued uh, that they're still pretty expensive and invasive. There are privacy issues with them, so uh, requiring them uh, for the general public would be a challenge. Uh, and he also mentioned that dash cams are, of course, popular in places like Russia, where there's supposedly a lot of fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, of course, seen dash cam videos on YouTube and stuff. I think everybody has. And it's actually interesting to me that I've seen those and I'm aware of those and I'm even kind of aware of that they exist for reasons of fraud. Um, but I hadn't put together that I should get one <laughs> for my car. You know what I mean? Like sure. it, for whatever reason, even though I had exposure to that, that didn't, that didn't occur to me until this Uber thing happened. Um, I, I think that's all right. Uh, the one thing I mentioned in the thread that we were talking there was, um, I think they're only invasive if they're pointed in the cabin. 
which they wouldn't in all cases need to be, right? I mean, if it's pointed outside your car, I don't feel like that's really... An well, it does see where you're going. So, you know, it, it sees, you it know, sees who you're, you're visiting, you right. know, what p- drive throughs you're going through, you know. Sure, it could piece together a picture of you similar to, like, what your GPS can. But it's also only seeing things that are in the public square. So as far as anybody else that it yeah. sees or anything else that it sees, those are things that are not, like, inside a closed vehicle. Well, this is going to trans uh, transition really nicely into yeah. our one of our main topics of the day, yes. which is privacy anyways, right? And, and, right? and what what does that mean? Because obviously this is in the news right now, especially with regard to Facebook. Yeah, this is what we really wanted to talk about today. Facebook's been in the news all day, every day. Um, Zuckerberg uh, was down at Congress doing the thing where you put on a tie and um, let old people who don't know what computers are yell at you There's all day trouble in the zuckerverse <laughs> <laughs> so yeah he got yeah. called before congress as i'm sure most of our listeners are aware of um because largely of a scandal that happened in their recent history um involving another company cambridge analytica so very broad strokes here right i'm sure everybody's probably read about this already but just to fill you in on some of the details that i wasn't aware of that i kind of looked up myself. Um, uh, basically, this company, Cambridge Analytica, uh, does political ad targeting. And they supposedly got the data of like 87 million Facebook users through a combination of a loophole and breaking Facebook's rules. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just explain briefly how that worked because it's kind of interesting. So, in 2010, Facebook started something called OpenGraph, which was an API that allowed you to get data uh, from Facebook users with their permission. It was a way for Facebook users to share their data on purpose with apps that might want to use it to do something with it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it was supposed to be a voluntary system, but there was a loophole in it, which was that it allowed people who granted their friend list to as one of the datas that they granted permission for uh the the those um api writer you know api accessors could then access the data not just of that one person but of everyone in their friend group without the additional permission of each friend right so it was a spider effect right it was like you got one person consensually and then let's say they have 300 friends 299 people now you just got non-consensually Right, that was the loophole, and that was in place until 2013. So for three years, that's how their system worked, and then they realized it was a problem, and they got rid of it in 2013. Somewhere in between 2013, uh, in fact, I can tell you exactly when. Uh, From 2010 to 2013 is this period you're talking about. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. It's actually 2014 that they closed the loophole. Got it. Okay. 2014 they closed the loophole, so it was uh, one year longer than that. And in 2013, before they closed that loophole, an academic at Cambridge University by the name of Alexander Kogan uh, created, uh, who had a, he had a company called Global Science Research. So he was trying to do academic research, or so he claimed. He created a quiz called This Is Your Digital Life. And this quiz exploited the loophole. And they paid 300,000 people to take this quiz. So those 300,000 people multiplied by all of their friends who were non-consensually and for no money um, getting their data taken through the loophole. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as a condition of getting this data out of Facebook, he agreed to a set of terms or his company agreed to a set of terms 
that included that they would not sell the data. But they broke that term because there was nothing like this. It was just they were just it was a rule. It was a rule. It was like, don't do this. Yeah. But there wasn't really anything preventing you from doing it in a technological sense. And their only recourse was to just like kick them off. It's kind of like a term of service violation of your account yeah. and ask them to delete it, which I think is but they part already of the- have the data. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They already have the data. You can't get it back. So what these guys did was they were and I don't think Facebook really knew that this was happening, but maybe they did. I, I guess I don't know that that's clear. Um, but uh they managed to suck out uh, through a combination of breaking the rules and exploiting a loophole, um, apparently 87 million people's personal data from Facebook. Then they took that data and they sold it to this company, Cambridge Analytic. So that's the company that does this psychometric research. They crunch all the data and they come up with sort of uh, profiles. And I mentioned this company actually a while back because right. we talked about uh, attention and uh, the economics of attention in an episode a while ago. And uh, I mentioned that this company was making these really bold claims, you know, about uh, what they were able to do in terms of uh, manipulating people uh, for the benefit of various elections and votes, including the Brexit campaign and the Trump campaign. Right. They also did uh, work for Ted Cruz's campaign before Trump. Yes. Um, and I was kind of skeptical. I mean, I think, again, the idea of what they're doing is interesting and definitely something we'll probably have to reckon with is like this very uh, targeted advertising that focuses on individual psychology. But I think it's good to be skeptical as I was then still of, you know, how effective that even is, because obviously this is a company that's uh, sketchy in general and also, you know, prone to to boast about what its capabilities are because yes. that's how it gets clients. Well, and there's been a separate scandal with this company. Uh, you may not have read about that their CEO was recently um, uh, ousted, and the reason is because of a leaked video of him boasting that he had used uh, shady tactics involving like hookers. And, really old school and, tactics. Like, you know, intimidation, like kinds of, yeah, like very old school kind of corruption tactics to win elections. Now, again, you know, either he's a a boastful person who's lying about that and that's sort of a poor character or he's telling the truth and that's worse. I mean, he's actually corrupt. I mean, either way, this is um, not somebody that I would trust 100 percent that everything they said worked, worked. But because they are such a uh, because that company looks so bad, especially because of those video, the video that came out on Channel 4 um, and because people in general are not happy about either Trump or Brexit. Um, I think some of that uh, stink uh, sort of gets on Facebook, you know, so like it makes this scandal look extra bad because people are are upset about these recent outcomes. And so Facebook ends up being partially blamed for that. Right. But of course, there's this larger issue of privacy online that has come up again as a result of all of this. Right. Well, and and, and specifically uh, whether Facebook, because of their size and, you know, the amount of private information that they hold, you know, they're just who you steal private information from if you're trying to steal private information, right? They're just the biggest target in a way. So I think a lot of what the discussion has been about if it, you know, the part of it that's been somewhat intelligent and not the part that's just grandstanding, which is always, you know, some of it uh, has been about what does Facebook need to do? What responsibility does it owe society given that it contains so much private information, um, and I, I mean, I don't know that I don't know that I have an answer to that. I think that's an interesting question. Yeah. And I don't think that we're going to answer what their sort of civic responsibility is uh, here on this podcast. I guess that is a very difficult 
question, mm-hmm. but um, I do want to talk about this issue because we haven't talked about it in a little while. Right. Uh, it's something that was one of the foundational issues that this podcast was made to discuss. Uh, this issue of privacy, one of our very first episodes was about uh, the coming end of privacy and what that might mean. Um, and we've done other episodes, one which I really uh, am proud of, which was uh, reasons to protect privacy or something along those lines where we discussed, you know, why do we want privacy in the first place? Right. What value is it? Yeah. Are we just preserving it because it's a thing we used to have or is there actually a a value to it? So we'll link back to that episode. Um, So I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but I do want to talk about some of the general thoughts that we have on privacy um, and whether they've changed or not. Um, For the most part, I feel not very upset about this kind of thing um, because it's pretty much in line with what I expect to happen Mm -hmm. and i think in some cases some of the outrage here either it's a result of the sort of you know tangential connection to trump Mm -hmm. or it's because people didn't really have their expectations calibrated correctly Mm -hmm. um so first of all we we've made a distinction in the past between two types of privacy right there's private there's de facto privacy Mm -hmm. privacy that just kind of happens because of accidents of the way the real physical world works Mm -hmm. um this would be privacy like for example what i did last weekend um if i went out of my house last weekend if i went to the beach or something um there's a sense in which it's private what i did because people that i didn't tell that to or that who weren't at the beach with me wouldn't normally know because of the limits of the physical world. Uh, but it's not really private either be, in the other sense, because I was in a public space and that information was readily available and I didn't have an expectation that, uh, you know, I was going to be totally anonymous just walking around in my own human body at the beach. Right. Like if your friend had been at the beach and seen you, they would have known you were at the beach. Yeah. yeah. I, so that kind of privacy, that de facto privacy is distinct from the kind of privacy by design situation where you say, you know, oh, come into my office for five minutes. Let's have a little chat, you know, or uh, like some sort of uh, the, the mail, for example, where you send someone a letter and there's like a very strong expectation that the mail that you send will not be opened at the post office and looked at. In fact, there's very severe penalties for that kind of thing. Right. Um, so my general feeling is that, you know, as the way that the technology is going is this de facto side of the privacy uh, is going away uh, right. pretty dramatically and pretty rapidly to the point that we can't really expect that anything that we didn't design to be private will be private. And that would include pretty much everything you do online. You, you should think of it as if you were doing it at the beach, as if you were doing it in a public space. Um, someone could walk by and see you doing something when you're outside and this, you should feel the same way about anything you do on Facebook, for example. Well, plus anything you do online is recorded. So there's the additional thing of anyone who can access the recordings can see you even in the past. Right. And I, yeah, the fact that it's mediated digitally means it's even easier to search and make use of. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think we'll reach a point eventually where even the physical world outside will be very similar to, Mm -hmm. you know, just do a to a proliferation of cameras everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for the time being, being online, you're especially vulnerable to that. And I think, again, people need to just kind of expect that, right? If you have, if you really want to protect your privacy um, on a particular issue or conversation, I mean, you got to you gotta plan for that. Have an in-person conversation. Um, don't have it online. Um, and in general, if you want to you know, protect your privacy. Most of these types of privacy are kind of unprotectable. (laughs) 
pretty much and if you want to function in society since i mean for most people the option of not using online services is not really available to them i mean you can you miss so much you can not use facebook for example but as part of this story has revealed i mean it doesn't really they have profiles on people that aren't necessarily registered facebook users i mean they can if you know you don't have to be a facebook user for them to know things about you right that's just one of the ways you can leak data uh it happens to be a big store of privacy data so it's a big target but it's not the only one at all yeah so, so my first advice to people would be to forget your de facto privacy. I also think that people should, you know, learn how to aggressively train these algorithms to the best that they can, mm-hmm. which we've talked about before. But what I mean is, you know, try to make these algorithms work for you. Most of these companies do offer some settings controls. Um, they're not often great or as robust as you might like, and yeah. they're sometimes hard to get at, but it makes sense that if you care about this, that you should try to learn about those and use them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's, you know, they're not showing you things that you, if they're showing you things that you don't want to see, you can usually tell them you're not interested or hit that hide button or whatever. Exactly. So there's some control that is being given to you by these companies, you know, learn how to take advantage of that because you might as well. Right. Um, and, and in general, um, I think what needs to come out of this is not, um, I mean, regulation we'll talk about in a second, but I think people just need to be more media literate about this stuff, right? Yeah, education is a big part of this because it's an arms race, right? It's like people get used to old-style television advertisements, but then, you know, they figure out how to do online content that activates the right part of your brain, and now they've got you on the hook with that, you know? And eventually people will get used to that, and then there'll be something else. I yeah, I mean, if you watch old television ads from, from like, the 60s, for example, sure. you know, they're laughably... The yeah, it doesn't have to go very far back. I mean, they're laughably bad at persuading you. Right. Um, and, you know, so these ads might get better and better because they're using your information to target you. So you need to respond the same way people have responded to television ads by being more skeptical of what you look at and, and getting savvy to the techniques that they're using yeah. um, as best as you can. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a few other things I want to talk about, but why don't we, why don't we kind of discuss the regulation issue? Sure. Um, so one thing that people have said about this, I saw Robin Hansen argue about this on a, in a little post, is, yes. is that... The worst thing that we could do right now, and this is the thing I always worry about when the, con- the National Congress gets involved in anything because uh, that's technological, um, is the worst thing we could do is just d- a random do something legislation, like mm-hmm. just pass something because we want to pass something, but not really understand the issues. What that's going to end up doing is it's going to entrench whatever companies are currently there because it's just going to raise the cost of entering yeah, I market. think that's a huge risk, right? Where like Facebook says like, all right, fine, you're going to regulate us. Yeah. Let us help you write the regulation. Yeah. And then that makes it harder for any other company. Well, they're just like, right. To as, enter the space. Yeah, write whatever complex regulation you want. We'll have plenty of programmers to comply with it. And little John Q social network startup is not going to have those programmers to comply with it. So they can't compete with us now. It's, yeah, it's a it's basically if it, if it doesn't do something really useful, the re- regulation can be a, a real bad thing, because right now the only thing keeping social networks honest is competition. So taking that away without without replacing it with something actually useful, actually well designed would be a disaster. Well, and asking them to do some very open ended to implement some very open ended um, sort of privacy regulations like you need to 
do X, Y, and Z thing or offer this to your users. Um, it could be a huge burden on a new company, right. basically, that doesn't have the same amount of money to spend on lawyers and programmers. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think um, what they're doing in the EU is, I don't, I'm not an expert on it, but this has some, they are making all the companies offer certain deletion tools. It's like part of their right to be forgotten thing. And, and that's, I think, a similar thing. We're like Facebook and Google uh, were not happy about it at first, but I think realize now that it's actually probably protecting their market share. In well, Europe, right? yeah, I want to talk about some of the sort of EU. So, okay, yeah. So, because the, the EU has some privacy regulations in place yeah. that we don't have here in the US. Yeah. Um, it's like, but they're relatively new. So I don't think the companies are complying yet. I think they're in the process of yeah, building their, companies. but there's the potential for pretty severe penalties for companies that don't follow these guidelines. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is like a tremendously complex policy that I could not comment on in detail, but right. I did go to their website and look at some of the general concepts. You mentioned the one that I think is probably the most problematic of all of them. Cause there's some that I think are good ideas and some that I think less so. Mm -hmm. So the right to be forgotten, um, you know, sometimes called the right to erasure basically is this sort of idea that you could sort of claw back your data that they have on file, yeah. um, force them to get rid of it or stop using it. I think that's or a delete you from search results. For example, if you had a scandal in your past. Yeah. I think that's a really, um, I think that's a really difficult one because, yeah. because one of the other things that I feel generally about this issue is that it's, we want to get away from the idea of owning data and think more about access it's just it's a change in word, but I think it's like an important um, change in uh, perspective on this. Right. Um, it's very hard to talk about owning data the way you own other property, uh, because there's you know there's not like clear lines of demarcation between what is your data and what is someone else's. Right. I mean, something that I say in a conversation to you, for example, even is like, is that your data or my data? <laughs> Right. Right. Um, and and well, most interactions are to, like that. Yeah. This comes back to a, like a uh, sort of fundamental issue with all intellectual property. Yes. Right. Which is that it's non-rival. So, what you just said is an example of this. Like, whenever you copy an idea, you you just have two copies of the idea. Yeah. Right? That's another dimension of it. You know? Yeah. So so for example, I generate some data by uh, uploading a picture to Facebook. Right. Mm -hmm. And now I own that copyright. Right. So in some sense, I own that data because they can't um, print that in a magazine and say courtesy of Facebook and not credit me and not pay me. Right. That's mm -hmm. that's I'm protected uh, in that sense. But they also can run that picture into their facial recognition algorithm and use it to train their algorithm to then recognize other faces elsewhere and use that thing to make yeah, money. That's another example right? of blurring the lines between when does it stop being your data and become... So do they need to own my data in order to do that? I mean, right now the answer is no, but maybe we would change the regulatory regime and make it that that was a permission that I needed to give them because my copyright protected also, you know, the digital scanning and training of additional, you know, external algorithms by my data, right? But that's not the way that we have treated data so far. So far, it's been kind of a finder's keepers model of if you can suck up the data through some legal means, then you can use it, period, right? Like as long as you're not invading my privacy, like by flying a drone camera into my house or something like that to get the data, then the, the law pretty much says you can process it and make third party 
products out of it however you like. Right. And again, that's how the real world has always operated with respect to de facto privacy. I mean, right. we can go through a long list of things that are not traditionally private, like what bands you like. Uh, you know, if I tell some people that I like a band, that's not data that I own. I mean, just put this in the real world because I think it shows right. how absurd this can get. Right. You know, if I tell someone at a bar that I like a band, I can't later like, and then later I'm embarrassed that I liked that band or something for some reason. Mm -hmm. I can't like claw back that information. I can't like call up that person and be like, no, you got to forget about that right now. Right. Right. I mean, once that's been spoken, that's kind of out in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, yes, the scale is different here. Right. And yes, there is one company that has access. And again, I think the word access is more important than own Mm -hmm. to a lot of data and Certainly, there are issues to talk about there. Right. But I think thinking of it as ownership is you get into really tricky, uh, like, conversations right away. Yeah, I agree with that. And if we just set aside for a minute who owns it, because I think you're right, it's it's really hard to disentangle what that really even means. Um, There is still an issue, though, of... Facebook has all this data. It has access to it, but actually has storage of the data as well, right? Like it is like Mm -hmm. a pot of data. And it is a target in the case of like Cambridge Analytica of um, fraudsters who want to steal that data Mm -hmm. and use it for various nefarious purposes. You know, whether or not their purposes are, are effective is maybe a separate question too. But just the idea that like, you know, any major company or government institution that has a lot of data could be a target for um, a hacker or a fraudster who would then have your data and you can't claw it back because they are not following the rules. So it doesn't matter what the EU says. You you won't be able to claw it back. They will have your data forever, right? And then they can do, you know, various things with it that you might not like. So... Uh, that's just the world we live in, right? It's like you take that risk pretty much any time you give some of your data to one of these large pots of data. Yeah, and and again, it's it it's it is. I think I how I feel the world works. It's not I'm not trying to make a normative statement necessarily about how things should be. Um, I I do I do want to say that I understand why people are creeped out by this stuff in general. Um, so, it's a scale, right? I mean, it's that if I'm in a bar and I tell you I like a band and you happen to be a band marketer, then you can and I write it down in a, in a spreadsheet. Then home. you can email me later or something. You can go, yeah. Hey, what's your email address? And maybe I'll give it to you. Cause like you're a human being and like, whatever, yeah. I'm not that worried. And you can email me later, like 10 other bands that I would like that are happen to be your clients or something. Right. And that's like, fine. Like, I don't feel, I don't feel too creeped out by that. Like, that's just something mm-hmm. that might happen in my life. I might like that that happened even. Right. But when you're a computer that everybody in the world uses and you do the same thing <laughs> to everyone in the world, I'm now I'm creeped out. But it's the same thing. It's just scale. The only difference is that there's instead of there being a, a distributed network of of band marketers around the world all doing small time work, there's like one giant band marketer that everybody interacts with because they sort of have to for other reasons who then markets to them you know i mean i can understand why that and they do have a large amount of access again coming back to that word so i think maybe the main difference just to make it as clear as i can is that owning is this rivalrous thing you're talking about if i own it you don't own it right so then now we have to decide with every little piece of data who is the owner right and what rights 
are protected by this ownership because when it's intellectual property, unlike de facto owning, like if I own a pair of pants, they're in my drawer at home and they're not in your drawer and that's very simple. But if I own the copyrights on a song, you might still have a copy of that song unauthorized on your computer, right? Um, And there's not an easy enforcement mechanism for me to require you to stop having that right right exactly so again the normal implications of owning in the real world uh, or even what they try to make it in intellectual property is that if you own it i don't right right it's like one or the other so for every little bit of information we have to decide does facebook own it does person x own it does person y own it right um and or maybe there's some complicated joint ownership scheme in which case how do you resolve who gets to do what with it but with access it's this additive thing it's not a um, it's a positive something, mm-hmm. right? Everyone could have access to something, right. and that's not a problem. You can't really say everyone owns something. Generally, that doesn't work, right? But you can say everyone has access, and that's much more how this stuff actually works. Right. Well, and the problem here was unauthorized access, right? I mean, there was a loophole that allowed access people didn't know about, and then there was a, a, a term of service violation that allowed access that was just prohibited, and in both of those cases, more people got access than were supposed to be authorized. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's come back to the the actual like EU's like privacy concepts, okay. right? Um, because again, some of them I'm on board with, and some of them I'm less so. But it's because I'm looking at it through this lens that we just kind of laid out. Um, so one of them is consent, right? And and sure. or transparency, you could call it, where you so you make it very clear that to people and not in a one of these long user agreements that's impossible to parse but like in a very easily uh expressible bit of text that says like here's what you're in for here's what we're going to do with this data here's who's going to have access to it and that make that honest and transparent and obviously that failed in this case uh because people could not have conceived of their data being used the way that it was so i agree because they were getting consent from one person and then applying it to that person's friend yeah. group without recursively getting consent from everyone, which would have been the way to do yeah. that. I, I feel like the way they now do permissions on cell phones has improved recently. Mm-hmm. And like it's uh, the first time you allow a certain app access to, say, your camera or your storage device or something. It pops up. It tells you exactly what you're adding. Mm-hmm. They're one at a time. You have to do each one separately so you see the word. And it's like designed, I think, this is user design and I think on purpose to get you to feel like it's transparent yeah and i'm strongly yeah. in favor of of that direction sure. in general i mean it's again doesn't make the regulation any easier to write policy is tough to get correct you know and to do a good job with but as a principle right. consent transparency i think those are good ideas yeah whether that's a norm or a regulation i support that another good idea that was mentioned on the uh eu's gdpr website was uh breach notification sure so when a data breach happens you got to tell people and you got to tell them in a timely manner. Fast, None yeah. of this waiting three years uh, or six months or, you know, as we've seen with, uh, you know, both Facebook and Equifax. Equifax and a couple of other uh, high profile things. This year yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a big problem. It's like, you know, voluntary and these companies, they're embarrassed and they're trying to fix it and they sit on it for a while. And it could, that's obviously a big problem. So um, uh, requiring some kind of timely notification makes sense to me right yeah um another one is right to access and i also like this one in theory all this is definitely by far the hardest one to work out how it's actually going to be executed in the law okay but uh right to access your own data again it's it's additive right you're not taking away access from facebook say 
but you are getting access yourself in addition mm -hmm. to what you've given them, right? So you could write a request to Facebook and say, I want to have access to all of the data you have on me in a dump. Um, now, it's still tricky because they have to decide, you know, well, first of all, they have to find all that data, which it depends how they have it organized. Um, second, some of the data they have on you might overlap in a way with other people whose privacy they don't want to breach now. Um, but I still think the general idea that you should be able to make a request with one of these companies and get a bunch of information back um, is potentially a good one. Again, right. I would worry about being burdensome to a young startup trying to enter this space. Right. Well, and the way that you can do that now on most of these sites is that you can get a zip file, which is just like all of your input files, like your JPEGs mm -hmm. of, your, of your pictures, texts of your conversation, that sort of thing. And that, as far as it goes, is fine. And it's not burdensome to do that on a server. So mm -hmm. for the most part, I'm fine with that. The thing about that is I don't think that really gets at what they really want you to have access to. They want you to have access the to... Third party the, ter the tertiary uh, algorithms that are trained on your data. That's where I think, you know, it, it's impossible to disambiguate that from everyone else's data because it's all kind of going in one place. But that's where I think they actually want to get you access to. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk of giving people access to the sort of inferences that are being made from your data. Right. Statistically speaking about, you know, you know, what, where your profile fits in terms of these psychometrics or right or whatever oh, sorry psychographics right i think Psycho i said the wrong thing before Psych uh the, the, psychometrics i think is how you measure things and psychographics is the dem is the data psychographic is the category like a demographic right. psychometric is the measure of a variable it's about like someone's the, cognitive like the, the state the methods for measurement yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah those are new newish terms for me so i screwed them over earlier but anyway um yeah i think that that's right um, so yeah, I, I think again, that's a tricky one to do for the reasons we said, but I would generally cautiously support talking about regulation in that area. Well, here's the thing I would, as like a person who likes using computers or whatever, as a nerd, yeah, I would like to have access to a kind of like Facebook algorithm control panel, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. With like, like a simplified readout uh, with dials and sliders of kind of all of the inference categories that are there and a kind of preview news feed where I can sort of turn the sliders up and down and see what happens a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, um, that would be really exciting. I would probably be inclined to use Facebook a lot more if I could tune it. Cause like we've talked about on the podcast before, I, I, I want Facebook to sort of cater to the me I want to be rather than the me I am. You know what I mean? Like I want it mm -hmm. to, I want it to show me the things that I abstractly want myself to look at, not the things that I'm like most likely to click at when I'm bored and distracted and mm -hmm. not thinking at hundred percent. So I like if you had fine grain control like that, where you could say, okay, this is what our data says about you. But now what do you want to say about you on top of that? I think that would make the social media experience just so much better. Yeah, I would like that too as a fellow nerd. I wouldn't, I'm not sure everyone would use it, but for me, I think it would be great. I mean, I really wouldn't be surprised as companies start to try to comply with some of these guidelines in the EU and, you know, especially if uh, the U.S. starts putting pressure, more pressure on these companies as they're sort of making moves towards, um, that you'd start seeing some of those features get added. But 
you know, probably being in a control panel, you know, somewhere where a power user can get at them. Yeah. Because they know that most people don't actually want them. But if they're there, then they can tell the lawmakers that they've checked the box and done the thing they're supposed to do. But, you know, meanwhile, people like you and me and uh, that want to aggressively train their algorithm, which I still think is a direction everybody should try to push towards, mm-hmm. um, will actually take advantage of those things. And that would be that would be a cool bonus if that came out of this. Um, again, as long as it's not such a burden to innovators that the newcomers that they can't you know join the space yeah and this doesn't need to be a regulation in my mind either it's just a feature that i would like in the competitive landscape i'd choose a network that had that feature that's true although it in general i don't know if that's a big draw for the larger market sure that no, isn't us yeah so uh you know it would maybe require regulation for this to actually happen and maybe. uh um but yeah so I, i'm kind of split on the pros and cons of regulation in that area it seems sounds really tricky um, the one I'm really skeptical of is the one we mentioned earlier, the right to be forgotten. Yeah. Because this is where, again, you're you're trying to establish ownership and take ownership away from one party um, and assign it to another. And I just think, man, how are you ever going to make that work in a way that's coherent and consistent um, <laughs> that and compatible no, that with seems- the way like just basically a way that um, people who don't like their negative reputations online are going to, you know, take advantage of it. it yeah. Yeah. really seem like it benefits anyone else. I don't really get it actually. Um, and I don't think you have a right to be forgotten, I guess. I just like, that doesn't even really make sense to me on a philosophical level, like on an abstract level. Um, yeah. I think, I your, think it, your reputation yeah. is one of the very few things that we can like without too much problematizing say you own <laughs> and that that you know is like um a meritocratic <laughs> uh measure of you as a as a person well you don't really own your reputation though right i, I, mean, I mean own is maybe the wrong word there because i don't mean own in the sense of control its use i mean own in the sense of um you are you are responsible for it <laughs> you're responsible for it but you in, in a way don't own it right because it's it's created by the society you're in right right in, right, in yeah. part for you based upon the things and it's you not do even really held by you yeah it's held by everyone else about you right so in that sense you don't I, I, own is the wrong word but i mean it's um yeah i mean that it's the it's it's a it's a thing that unlike your you know station at birth or your race or mm-hmm. the college you went to it, you can pretty unproblematically say it's a measure of how good you are Sure. Or things like your <laughs> that's what I'm saying. or things like your personality, right? I mean, like that's mm-hmm. where this story comes from, right? Is that uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica was trying to slot people into these established psychological personality profiles. Right. Well, again, is your personality actually private? Again, if we imagine what that would mean in the real world, right, on a smaller scale, it seems quite absurd to say that your personality is private. Right. If you interact with another person, they experience your personality um how it is right and they form a model of it although that model is imperfect right yeah and and i think one interesting thing about personalities is that they're subtle right the first time you meet someone you don't know that much about their personality if you've known somebody for years you think you have a much better understanding of their personality right like the more different experiences you get with them the more of them you know yeah so that's interesting i think because i think again what people are creeped out by here is this tantalizing possibility and again i don't know if this really works (laughs) that you could without knowing somebody from a vast array of data about them ascertain their personality right 
which is like a cool magic a trick. Yeah. Uh, but it's just a question of scale, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you could interview everybody in the world, if you had unlimited time, you mm-hmm. could probably find out everybody in the world's personality relatively easily. It's just that being able to do it automated it is a huge difference in scale. Yeah. But here's the here's the long-term futurist thing that I feel about this, mm-hmm. right? Which is we're very upset about Facebook right now because they have so much more access to this stuff than everybody else, right? There's this sort of an asymmetric relationship here. Right. I mean, there's other... There's Google, but basically that's... There's yeah. Google, there's governments. Right. Um, And maybe there's Amazon, Apple. There's like a handful of players here that have some, some store of pretty large information. Right. Um, on people and it's a little troubling to think about oh that's just a few actors my long-term prediction is that there's going to be a lot more actors in this space because i kind of feel like again in the way we're describing the world is leaking data all the time your personality is on display when you walk down the street when you talk to someone Mm -hmm. right all there needs to be is sensors to pick that up um and I'm kind of anticipating, and this is a guess, I mean, you know, speculation, obviously, that in the future, there's going to be a lot more actors than just a few of these companies that are able to suck up that data that is just out there in the open to be sucked up. You know what I mean? There's not really an easy way to protect these things that are de facto private, like right. your personality. Right. And it doesn't actually matter how the structure of it is. If Even if it all goes through Facebook and Google first and then gets stolen out of those places, right? It'll leak out in that sense, too. It'll leak out too. in that sense, too. So I just think it, no matter what, yeah, it's either way, it's going to be a leaky world where no matter who the first order collector of data is, we're going to have a lot of data floating around and a lot of processing power with which to correlate it. And so you're going to see a lot of effects from that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So um, so just to, to kind of sum up that particular issue as best I can, um, I don't, you know, I, I would be very cautious about regulating this stuff because it could easily end up just helping solidify Facebook's monopoly in the long term. And I'm much more in favor of things that are positive some, like giving people extra access, giving people extra... Uh, consent uh, notifications, giving people breach notifications. More education as to what? More education yeah. about uh, how media, in the sense, works. Um, and I'm less in favor of stuff that's zero-sum, like establishing ownership rules where people can have a right to erasure or be forgotten. The only regulation that makes any sense to me off the top of my head would be uh, just requiring very strong security protocol. Yeah, that and security obviously That's basically it. And I don't think they're gonna do that because the government would like to break their security <laughs> protocol. So I think that they would be working against their interests. But that that's the only part of it to me that I, it sounds like, well, that's not too burdensome for a young firm because most of the stuff's off the shelf, you know. You just have to choose to use it. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're just required if you're doing anything in the social space in America, you have to be using whatever the best security is that's out right now. Like that's the regulation I'm imagining, right? It's like, it's a relatively simple requirement. Almost everybody could do it, and it just would mar- marginally increase our safety. I don't yeah. think it's going to massively change the world. But mostly what I'm interested in preventing is unauthorized access, because to me, unauthorized access is the only real scandal here. Like, if they don't have that unauthorized access, I'm not freaked out about psychographic research. I'm not freaked out about... Facebook having my social information in order to create fun social 
things for me on Facebook. That's fine. The only thing I'm worried about is like some academic making one lie basically and being able to steal a tremendous amount of, you know, unauthorized access, a whole bunch. Yeah. I think we can agree that that was a fuck up on a pretty big scale that was avoidable. That was avoidable that like, I think Facebook has a part in and obviously the people who actually did the crime have the biggest part in. I mean, I think the Mm -hmm. the actual uh, academic and his, um, and the people who bought from him at Analytica are the people who really committed uh, the wrong here. Um, but also Facebook allowed that wrong to happen and their, their loophole allowed that wrong to be of a larger size than anybody realized. So both of those are bad things, but yeah, I don't know. To me, it's just about what do we, what can we do to prevent unauthorized access while promoting authorized access basically? Um, and let's move away from ownership as a, of data as a concept. Well, yeah, I just stopped talking about it that way because it's, it's kind of irrelevant. I mean, ownership is relevant only in the sense of, like, copyrights, I think. Like, um, nobody really thinks that Facebook can, like, you know, take your pictures that you took. and Sure, and we already have a very complicated copyright regime to handle that. And I'm in favor of simplifying or reducing that rather than adding to it. So I wouldn't want to fold more things into that kind of mess. Right, right, Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that works well enough for pictures and things. And it could be simpler and less all-encompassing and still work yeah 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 um so i mean there is a related issue here obviously which is um, which is um which is seems like it's getting less attention recently although it's been in the news plenty before that about um facebook's responsibility as a platform for hosting quote-unquote harmful content right fake news if you prefer or whatever that form that takes well are you talking about fake news are you talking about like hate speech tos uh, violations hate speech torture um child porn stuff like that all the above right yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean because that's different from privacy right i think it still touches on the issue of media literacy i think if people are literate about what they're looking at that at least helps with the fake news side of things but there is a question of like sh- is there a place for regulation here um in terms of getting facebook to follow certain to, to moderate things in a certain way to act as a moderator. Right. Well, so they're already acting as moderators. Yeah. And um, I actually saw a really interesting documentary movie about this at Sundance this year. So if you can see it, there's a movie called the cleaners that I recommend mm-hmm. um, that is about the people in uh, the Philippines who are the subcontractors who actually do the moderation for the various big companies. And for a variety of reasons, it's subcontracted out. So that's how they show that they are complying without actually being responsible for. So there are actually regulations already in place that require these companies to do a certain amount of, you know, policing for child porn and Mm -hmm. what have you. Um, Explicit content, TOS violations. For like the very, the most extreme versions of it. The most extreme versions of stuff. uh, Killings, killings. Sexual stuff. But not like the fact-checking journalism level. No, no, no. These are not fact-checking journalism. In fact, part of the interesting part of the movie is showing how little context these people have for the work they're doing because they're from a different society and they happen to be um, a very Catholic-dominant society where people are particularly um, 
you might say prudish. Sorry, where is this happening again? In the where Philippines. Is this? So it's outsourced to the Philippines, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, they actually follow one of the women who worked there, and she goes to her church, and then she wanders around the town, and she's telling you about you know um, how she'd never seen so many dicks before. She didn't really know what a dick looked like, and she goes to a, a dildo store, and she's like, it's it's very charming, and but you're seeing that it's um it's a burden for her because she felt she was sinning by going to work, right? Huh. And then um, her her alternate path in life that was open to her was she could be a garbage picker, somebody who scavenges in heaps of garbage. But this job was like you wear a suit, you go to an office, you get a paycheck. It was clearly a better lifestyle. Well, and the obvious metaphorical similarity between those two options is is amusing. Right? Yeah, right. She is basically a, a garbage picker of a different kind. Of a different kind. She's data garbage picking. And of course, the garbage there is... Um, offensive content right and uh, and to her you know for me it's like if my job was deleting dicks all day I'm not sure I would care but I understand that that's my cultural upbringing and my own opinion. you're not Catholic I'm not Catholic I didn't my my parents aren't in Catholic. case any listeners were confused Ted <laughs> yeah. is not Catholic not Catholic uh, you know I was not raised conservatively I don't I, I don't I don't fear any judgment from people who are conservative in my family or my close life so to me, it's just not a big deal, but I completely understand why for for her it was, and I thought that was a really fascinating uh, movie. So I recommend that you see that. It's got a, it's not exactly about the future, but it's very much about our present, and it's a part of it you never see. Right. So th- that is fascinating. I would like to see that. I wonder if again expanding that into fact checking news would be wise or doable. But obviously, that's part of the conversation now. Right. Right. Well, so one of the things in it is that. Um, they take down um, terrorism stuff, right? Yes. Uh, but they don't really know like what ISIS is or anything. That's too far from their experience. Um, so uh, one of the people that they interview in there is a Syrian group that is trying to document the Syrian war that's ongoing right now, uh, civil war there. And um, they have to basically, the second something, people will post video of like a bombing or something like that online and it will get deleted within like an hour. So they need to download every video. <laughs> this is actually a great parable of both data leakiness and lack of context because what this company's job is, or this nonprofit's job is to to download every video and tag it and figure out where it was from and put it on a map before it gets deleted from these various services huh. that mistake it for graphic violence because they don't, or for terrorist propaganda because they don't know the difference they can't really they don't speak arabic and they can't tell so yeah though but i mean that movie aside again it sounds fascinating but like do you think there's a place at all for requiring companies to to do fact checking because to me that is like a really thorny area right 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 well fact checking is a tough thing to require i think both because of first amendment protections yeah that they would have um but also because um facts are often slippery and a lot of this fake news stuff is not even in always not factual right i mm-hmm. mean sometimes it's more about spin um so i don't know that seems very difficult to do not necessarily um something that society doesn't want but i i don't know how you design it um what i think there is some room for and i saw um I'm going to pick on Robin Hansen again just because I like his tweets. So I saw a tweet that he tweeted about um, supposing that the reason it's so challenging to regulate social media is there's not really a precedent 
for how you would rec- regulate it. Uh-huh. But I thought about that a little and I was I was not sure that that's right. I think there might be a precedent, which is to me the precedent is this. It's Big 3 classic broadcast television. And right, Big 3 classic broadcast television are very similar to Facebook in the sense that it was a very small number of companies that constituted a monopoly that offered a free ad-supported service that informed everyone. Right? Mm-hmm. And there was I mean, that's a lot of things that are similar. And they were highly regulated because of the limits of spectrum saying that you could really only um, have so many people broadcasting at a time. So so in exchange for the right to use the airwaves, we actually imposed um, some pretty serious restrictions on them. Exactly. So we, we gave them something super valuable, which was we gave them monopoly rights over the airwaves. And, uh, we took from them in exchange uh, several con- uh, concessions, including a uh, concession that was basically like a public good concession, right? It was a very vague regulation. Mm-hmm. And it basically said they had to dedicate a certain amount of time because this is broadcast. So yes. broadcast is about time. Of course, with Facebook, it's not exactly about time. But they had to dedicate a certain amount of time each day on their broadcast to something that could plausibly <laughs> be argued was in the public interest. And that basically is why we have evening news that the, the invention of evening news wasn't a market innovation. It was a, a response to regulation, right? It was, uh, the, the, yeah. the market figuring out what to do that might be of interest that wouldn't lose them their ratings. And the answer was the news. And, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that's perfect, but there are a lot of things that were good about the old system um, that, despite the benefits of a multi-channel universe, have been lost with cable. And uh, I think there is maybe some version of that that could be done that would be kind of vague, that would not be a huge burden to um, companies because it wouldn't constitute a whole lot of technical work, but that would allow the government to come in when they felt it wasn't being uh when they weren't holding up their end of the bargain and Mm -hmm. and to sort of nudge them in the direction of like you know we'll consider it good enough if you do this which seems to be the thing to do right now here's my concern yeah although it's fixable yeah um is that again the context as we described for these original laws right and again, I'm not sure how effective these laws were, but we, we did them, so there's precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the context was one of these the scarce spectrum that we had to dole out, right? So right. it was a trade. It was like, we give you something valuable, so we're going to force you to do things a certain way. Right. Obviously, that's not the situation with the internet and social media. Um, you know, there's... They're voluntary in a way that... Or non-rival, rather, in a way that uh, spectrum is... There's no obvious limit to the number of social media companies you could have because there's not limited spectrum right i mean there's limited bandwidth in some senses but really um the idea is no that's different the thing that's sort of equivalent though is network effect right is that any network of sufficient size is very hard to dislodge right so that that was the fix i was going to suggest right because again if you do if you don't take into account the network size then you run the risk that we were talking about earlier where you make it very hard for new competitors to enter the space. Because if you impose this requirement that you have to do, run your social media corporation, you know, with a 20% concern for the public good or whatever the vague yeah, regulation I don't, I don't is. exactly how you formulate it, but um, yeah, yeah. Then that's, mm-hmm. again, a lot of extra work for somebody who's just trying to, like, get a competitor off the ground. So, But I think the easy fix is 
this kind of regulation, if it were to exist, should really be restricted to networks above a certain size. Yeah, I support that. I think that's a good idea. I'm not sure I'm totally convinced that it's too burdensome. I think it depends on how you do it. But it could just be that, you know, a kind of do no harm baseline is acceptable but it feels like you're um, you're kind of ba- it it just feels suspiciously to me like baking in a monopoly when you start to say all right you guys are the big players now you clearly won you're the big three you're amazon google facebook so you guys need to start doing things for the public good right we're not actually going to nationalize you or anything right we're just going to kind of accept that now this is just the three companies we're stuck with it seems right. like i would worry that would bake things in right so is it baking things in or is it recognizing that these uh companies have a large network however if it's based on your network size then it can just be whoever happens to be biggest at the then time then it could scale right so a young company with few users can completely ignore all this stuff. Right. And it's not until you hit a certain size that you get added to the list. Right, right. And and you just price that into your your VC, you know. Your growth plan. Your growth plan. Right, exactly. You just say like, you know, when we hit this many users, we're going to start building compliance, basically. I think that size would have to be per- set pretty high. Yeah, but it, it would. It would have to be set very high because really this stuff only matters when you've got millions of users. Like if you don't have even tens of millions of users, I feel like, so what? You know, I mean, every day some site has another uh, news article coming out that there was a breach, right? I mean, yeah. I, I got two emails last week, both from companies. I haven't used their services in years. I, did, I hadn't even remembered I had an account. Yeah, I got some stuff like that too. That were like, your, your username and your hashed password are gone, so... Uh, you know, probably you should change any uh, passwords that are similar to that one on any other sites. And, you know, like, and these are, this just happens all the time now. Like, uh, we are living in an era of pervasive data breaches, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that's only going to increase. Um, Which, again, I would maybe double down on your point from earlier, which is maybe the best place for regulation is not the privacy side so much as the security side. Now that's a spectrum privacy and security at some level are the same thing. But when we're talking about security, we're talking about the, the most sensitive stuff and we're talking about possibly requiring companies to adhere to certain common sense standards, right? Technical standards. Yeah. We're not suggesting how they build their product and or the government. I mean, the government could, you know, force itself to adhere to some common sense standards because they are the worst of all. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think uh, in general, you might see uh, better security with with many of these private companies than with, uh, I mean, certainly with private companies that are advertising security at all as part of their service, which that's not part of the service that, Facebook is offering. No, they're like an antidote to yeah, security. Yeah. But, 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 but a private company that's actually attempting to offer security as part of its service, I would trust more now even than the government. Yeah. Um, just because the incentives are not even there. So, yeah, I mean, that is definitely a place for improvement. Um, it's hard, though. I mean, regulation and policy is hard, and this is going to be, you know, hard to to hash out right and we haven't even gotten into the fact that none of these congress people know how a computer works and they're all 70 years old so that's like uh let's look another can of worms that we shouldn't open today yeah yeah okay i I would feel better about this if like any of the people who are actually lawmakers had ever used a computer that would make me feel better (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the most entertaining things about this uh, whole uh, testimony before Congress is just some of the clips that came out of it. Uh, it's <laughs> We won't get into it now, but you can amuse yourself online looking at yeah, yeah. that stuff. All right, I think we should wrap it up. This has been a really fun uh, and intense discussion of privacy. Uh, please write in and tell us what we screwed up. I think you're going to be having a lot more uh, follow-ups and corrections at the beginning of episodes coming. Yeah, I'm sure we said things some people don't agree with, but the goal is to make this more of a conversation. As you saw at the beginning of this episode, we did a lot of follow-up. So if you contact us and you have something to say and you tell us we're wrong, we'll we'll mention that. Yeah, we don't mind being wrong. We just want to clear the air, you know, if it... uh if it comes up. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's that. And we'll have more stuff coming at you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Oh, one oh, last thing. That's right. Our graphic novel, which we've been talking about for ages, uh, is going to be coming out on a publisher. Previously, it was only available to our Kickstarter backers. That's but right. It, but it will be generally available. We don't have an exact release date yet. We don't have a release date yet, but we are, uh, we do have a pre-order page on Amazon. So if you are so gung-ho that you want to pre-order it, uh, you can go to letgocomic.com yes. and place that pre-order. Uh, but obviously, you can also wait until it's released. We will be keeping you up to date as that progresses. Yeah, we're going to definitely announce as soon as we have a release date, uh, which will be soon. It'll be this summer at some point. We don't know exactly when. Um, and as soon as we have that, we will let you know. And then we will be relentlessly bothering you about it. So uh, please go to letgocomic.com and pre-order that if you have been waiting for it. And um, we will uh, be back with more content soon. Until next time. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.